going from time. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Ryan! Miles plays on and misses. Got it to the big guy. Dak, 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 Dak. Dak's nailed free. Oh, who else? McDonald. From inside the centre square. Boys kick the goal. couldn't start this episode without a tribute to the Brisbane sound guy. I think of all the things that happened during week one of the 2022 final series, his contributions were the most memorable. The least consequential, but the most memorable. That's how I like living my life. Welcome to episode 61 of Americans Watching the Footy. I'm Benjamin Castle. I'm Ethan Castle. We are both coming to you once again from South San Francisco, California. We're here to recap week one of the finals. Just four games over three days, but that had enough drama for probably multiple rounds. We were talking a few rounds ago about how round 20 was this amazing spectacle. There were really only three or four games that stood out in that one, though, and all four of these were more than compelling the whole way through. Well, actually, perhaps the last one wasn't compelling at the start, but it turned that way. I mean, one-sided bloodbaths are compelling in their own right. Before we get into all of that, though, I do want to run over some quick news items from around the league. First off, Liam Shields retiring. I'd highlighted him as having slipped in form this year from Hawthorne. There was heavy speculation during the season that this would be his last, at least in those colors. Turns out that's all for him, period. An important contributor to their three-peat from 2013 to 15, but as the Hawks look toward the future with Sam Mitchell necessary for him to go to make room for younger pieces. Never again shall he be confused with Dylan Shield. And connecting from Alistair Clarkson's past to his present and future, a couple news items out of North. The first of them to emerge was the expected resignation of CEO Ben Amarfio. You can say what you will about his acumen when it comes to the footy side of things, but he was really helpful in reconciling the club's debt. Again, this was part of a string of expected resignations and executive changes as the Clarkson era took shape. Todd Viney was also named head of football last week. Three years out of the game for Viney, but he's back there. And then some player personnel news for North. Cameron Zerhar has signed on for two more years. There was heavy speculation that he may go elsewhere. A lot of teams were looking toward him, Essendon, Fremantle, but maybe the allure of playing for Clarko has kept him on board. There's been some tension between West Coast and Port Adelaide over the recruitment of Junior Rioli, and it sounds more and more like he's going to be heading to the power. Benjamin, the resident Eagles expert here, could tell us a little bit more about that. He did play in his youth in the Sandful for Glenelg, and so he's got some family and important people there. It may be a comfort level for him at this point, trying to get himself in the right place mentally after losing his father. It's really unfortunate for the Eagles because of how they've supported him the past few years. But also, I think he might start to be tailing off a little bit in terms of where his contributions may lie 
West Coast. At the same time, I'm not sure you know how the small group might look the next couple years. So from that alone, this will hurt. And then you add the non-playing side of things as well. Hopefully there's decent compensation. This could be one of the rare years where Port has a decent draft pick. So maybe the Eagles could get another top 10 pick or so out of it. Not sure. Tim Taranto looks like he is going to be going to Richmond rather than Collingwood. Those were considered the two main suitors. It looks like it's going to be a seven-year deal in excess of $750,000 per year. That seems like quite the reach in terms of salary, but I think it's going to drive up the prices for other acquisitions this offseason. Thinking about Josh Dunkley potentially going to Port as well, another one that's picked up steam as of late, should also bring a strong return in terms of draft picks for GWS, maybe in terms of volume rather than pick placement because Richmond bounced back into the finals. Toronto is just 24. He'll turn 25 in January. I think it'll be really cool to see him in a different system and find how Richmond plan to utilize him because I've just seen him at least this year as just a guy who gets a lot of possessions and haven't put much thought into how he's featured. So that'll be fun seeing him go into Damian Hardwick's system. And speaking of Collingwood, we know they've been poised to bring in Dan McStay from Brisbane. We'll be talking about him in just a bit. Sounds like they are nearing the acquisition of Billy Frampton from Adelaide, as well as Bobby Hill from GWS. So definitely a couple open slots there for the Giants. It makes even more sense now that why the Giants have been reported to be pursuing Toby Bedford from Melbourne. You know, Collingwood have a pretty loaded list as is where it's tough to crack their lineup. So it'll be interesting to see who moves out of there. McStay and Frantum strike me as potential replacements in the tall forward slash ruck areas for Mason Cox, who's probably got only a year or two left at this point, despite everything he can bring in a finals campaign. With how Cox is an important mark all over the field, Collingwood have been lacking at times in that steady, tall key forward presence in the square. Ash Johnson is the closest that they have to that right now, and he's by no means the height that you'd expect to have in that spot. The most puzzling piece of trade and free agency news as of late, though, is that the Gold Coast Suns have reportedly offered Jason Johannesson a three-year deal. Ellipsis. A good player, don't get me wrong. but At times. But he's already 29, and if you're playing him towards a forward position, you've got a pretty crowded group there, even with the expected departure of Isaac Rankin. So this just, it seems like an odd fit. Maybe they're planning on deploying him in a different role than he's been in with the dogs, but maybe this involves a potential move into coaching after things as well. I'm not sure. I feel if that's the case, then I'd be more understanding of that if so, but I didn't get an indication of any of that from Mitch Cleary's report. It's confusing. It's also going to be confusing trying to parse through absolutely everything in each of these four finals games. And there's coverage of this pretty much everywhere in the AFL world. So We'll do our part. Hopefully we don't get too long-winded. The difference between everyone else's coverage and ours is that ours is better. Back in that awesome round 20, Richmond and Brisbane was one of the highlights. It was Richmond who came back from a 40-plus point deficit to win there. There was no margin that was that far out in this one, and maybe that worked to the Lions' favor because, Ethan, you talked about how the Lions seem to unravel when they allow a few goals in a row. And that never happened here. Yeah, there was really no lengthy run in this game. You always felt like a team was a goal away from pulling away. And 
They never got that next goal. 17 lead changes in total. This was an incredible way to start finals. And unlike the following night, I'm so glad I was awake and engaged with my heart and with my mind. Thanks, Bezel. It seemed multiple times like there were opportunities for Richmond to pull away. They led 83 to 67 after a Tom Lynch goal with about six minutes left in the third. Mitch Robinson had a largely quiet game and then a dumb late hit on Tyler Sonzi that let the Tigers reopen up an 11 point lead with a minute 21 left in the third. And yet the Lions got the next couple goals, retook the lead. Joe Danaher, who had a really rough start to the game, scored from the edge of 50 less than 25 seconds later. Charlie Cameron scored in the opening moments of the fourth quarter to put the Lions up 91-90. And that was set up by, and this is going to be a common theme, a really nice play from Daniel McStay. Oscar McInerney left this game in the opening minutes after looked like some sort of collision to the head, might have broken his nose, led from the nose profusely, probably concussion watch, among other things. But it meant that the Lions were getting absolutely throttled in hitouts. They still managed to hold their own somewhat in clearances as the game went on, and a huge part of that was McStay, who got moved all over the ground. I thought if you were picking best on ground for this game, I would probably give it to McStay. Russell Robertson, please don't start playing. Yes, Lockheed Neal had far more disposals than anybody else, 13 more than any other player on either team. I don't care. He did play a damn good game, don't get me wrong, and... There should be a lot of questions about Richmond's decision not to tag him. Thing is, they nearly got over the line without that. And there was a bit of an adjustment in the second half, particularly in the fourth quarter, where Marlon Pickett was actually assigned to him a decent amount. Continuing to go through the fourth quarter, a couple good kicks from Jack Revolt on the left side. In between those, Brisbane got a goal from Joe Danaher, who closed the game very well. There were still four more lead changes After that goal by Cameron, there were five lead changes in the final quarter, if that's any indication of what type of game this was. And there was no shortage of controversy. Tom Lynch kicked a left snap from very close that was initially called a goal, but changed to behind on a review. Would have opened up a two-goal lead. Instead, it was a four-point game with 2.02 left. While he was setting up for the kick, I tweeted something about, you know, Tom Lynch and his mortal enemy kicks from right in front of goal. It was called a goal on you know, initially, but Lynch himself didn't even celebrate. And no, Ark doesn't take player reaction into account. If there was any actual legitimate evidence for it not being a goal, you could use some sort of triangulation. I just don't get why anyone would have suggested the idea that Lynch's reaction would have been taken into account. I thought, admittedly, that his reaction was telling. I mean, it came off his foot he would probably know better than anybody. He probably knew he didn't hit it very well, and that was it. So that happened with two minutes, two seconds left. Frantic sequence down the field for Brisbane. Not the cleanest, but eventually Kadeen Coleman got the ball to Zach Bailey in the left pocket. And before I go further, I mentioned in our Finals Week 1 preview that Zach Bailey was going to be essential to the Lions' success, especially with Rayner out. Bailey loves those middle runs throughout the field. We saw a number of them from halfback, and then a good finishing touch as well. Gave that one off to Danaher, had one himself, and then no shock that he has the ball in an important spot late. You said Zach Bailey was essential? I'd clap for Zach Bailey at 7 p.m. every night. Or would it be 8 p.m. there in Australia? One of the few positive lasting images from that very stupid stretch 
of human history was Boris Johnson stepping outside, asking if it was 8 o'clock, and then applauding. That was awesome. Bailey kicked into the goal square. It was shortened to the right. There were five Richmond defenders in the area. If you're a Tigers fan, you're seeing that. You think, all right, this is a decent situation. Joe Danaher got it out of the back. This is the sort of fundamental breakdown and mental lapse that cost the Tigers games. During that stretch from round 17 through 19, when they lost to both the Suns and Roos and ended up with a tie against the Dockers, and it was those sort of late lapses that were killer. Plays like that adding up, and this one was front and center because it was the decisive goal with a minute left. Shea Bolton nearly had a rush the other way, but Lockie Neal was able to tackle him, kind of started by grabbing him by the Guernsey and then got him cleanly, and then a long kick into the forward 50 by McStay with about 20 seconds left put the game away. There was no shot for Richmond after that. And then we got to hear we're from Ty before they switched over to Pride of Brisbane Town. Tough way for Shane Edwards to go out. He was brought on as the injury sub in place of Dion Prestia. That's that's something that should not be ignored. Prestia left this game early injured. And he was having a very strong impact before that. It seemed a very sudden substitution. It was his hamstring. That's something that had been troubling him for the past couple years, if there's one reason why he hasn't been on the field as much for a lot of his career, it's because of hamstring issues. There was nothing noticeable at the time, and he didn't, like, visibly hobble off. And when the teams went off at halftime, he walked off looking totally fine, honestly. But, look. A player would know his body better than anyone. You beat me to it. These athletes know their bodies better than anyone else, and... You're not pulling yourself out of a final unless it's a legitimate injury. So, Especially when you've probably been the best player that they've had for a long stretch of the season. Not accusing Prestia of any way in, you know, being soft or whatever. It's just... Never. It's just, it was weird because it wasn't visually obvious. Whereas normally you can see right away, oh shit, that's his hamstring. He's done for a month. Final score in this one was Brisbane 16-10, 106, defeating Richmond 16-8. 104. Ladies and gentlemen, the Lions have done it in a home final. And I think Chris Fagan's willingness to move pieces like McStay around was crucial. And in the first half, when Danaher was quiet, Eric Hipwood, you know, just kicked three goals. Having two of those long-range tall kicks like that is perhaps an underrated attribute of Brisbane's list. And the midfielders who came in in place of the suspended Noah Answorth and Cameron Rayner Played very strongly as well. Devin Robertson and Darcy Wilmot both got a goal. Wilmot debuting, the first player to do so in a final played outside Victoria. He got his from a moment that I want to revisit. Richmond were given advantage in a very tight spot. And Liam Baker was just like, no, no way. This kind of got walked back over the line by Wilmot. And then free and 50 immediately. Damian Hardwick was yelling, but seemed to me he was more frustrated by Baker in that moment than the decision. And those are, again, the sort of lapses that add up. I want to say something positive about the Lions here. You know, I had ripped on Dane Zorko's leadership a few weeks ago, and he proved me right with that. I still don't know if he's got the right qualities to be a captain, but talent-wise, I don't know if there's a better player at kicking from the center circle, not the center square, but within the center circle into the forward 50. He does it with such amazing accuracy. And it set up multiple goals in this game. There was one to Zach Bailey in the second quarter that really stood out. There was also one to Callum Achi in the first quarter. Achi had come on as the injury sub for McInerney, which kind of forced Fagan's hand into moving guys into different spots. 
And he did a really good job sliding guys around into the right spots without kind of overcompensating or trying to ask just one guy to do a bunch of people's jobs. This was just a really well-coached game. And I've always thought Fagan's a very good coach. And for him to have final success is probably the least surprising aspect of this win for Brisbane. That is something I was waiting on. The other aspects of it definitely did surprise me. This was the first final since the second elimination final of 2015, incidentally enough, for both teams to score over 100. That was when the Bulldogs defeated Adelaide. And then Richmond, you know that they've had trouble in close games this year. 0-5-1 in games decided by a goal or less. There's a reason we focus on all these little mistakes. I will note, two of those losses, the one to Sydney and the one to Geelong, I think were much less their own mistakes and more their opponent's success, but that's four other games. The four most recent of them. Where they just beat themselves in tight games. And look, you got to be able to win tight games because you're facing such good teams that you're not just going to be able to out-talent them. Now, the North Melbourne game was obviously a billion mistakes against a team they should have beaten easily, but Frio, the Suns, and the Lions, good teams. We already mentioned that Lockie Neal had a huge statistical day. 39 disposals was 50% more than anyone else on ground. Also with a joint career high, 15 clearances, 9 score involvements, and 455 meters. Again, the questions about not tagging him throughout the game will mount. But also, again, this was only a two-point win. So Richmond did well in a lot of places, despite Neal's influence. Other big individual stats for Brisbane... Hugh McCluggage with a goal, 26 disposals and 480 meters gained. He's been getting stronger in terms of kicking four goal as of late. Zach Bailey, whom I highlighted multiple times, 1-1 from 24 and eight score involvements. Dan McStay, 23 disposals, nine score involvements. Not huge in the hit-out department. It was Richmond plus 39 there. But like a lot of not first-rate Ruckman, they're good immediately off those contests. I'm thinking of someone like Jeremy Finlayson in that regard. Dane Zorko, 21 disposals and 8 marks and some pinpoint kicking at times. Daniel Rich with 17 disposals, but 519 meters gained that reliable long kick out of halfback and the middle. Definitely a stabilizer there at times. You have Rich as the kick from there and Bailey as the legs just running through and Coleman being able to do both. And you've got a really good setup back there. Did you see Daniel Rich with mini Daniel Rich from the NAB mini legends? I did, and I loved it. It was awesome. I think the best part of this is that Mini Daniel Rich is actually a Demons fan. I would assume he lives in Queensland, although it would be really funny if they flew him to Queensland just for this, but I guess he's not tall enough to be Max Gone. Again, though, the concept of the NAB Mini Legends is the greatest thing ever, and I wish other sports did this. Zach Tui! That reminds me of how Patrick Dangerfield was chaired off by two players who had been have many legends with the commercial he had in that. Zach Tui? I mean, Brown is Haywood. If we were to go all the way back to episode two, the NAB mini legends are good for footy. Notable stats for the Tigers. Toby Dancurvis a behind on 26 disposals and nine clearances. Marlon Pickett, 23 disposals. Jack Ross, I thought he was one of their best players, maybe their single best. A goal, 23 disposals, eight marks and eight score involvements. Nick Vlostone, the other guy you could consider up there with Ross, 21 disposals, 11 intercepts, 8 marks, he gained 480 meters. Jaden Short, 20 disposals and 542 meters. 
and efficiency inside 50 ended up favoring the Lions 49.2 to 42.9. And I'm sure you could find little mistakes in there by the Tigers that added up to a couple opportunities they missed, though it wasn't their ability to score that hurt them. It was their inability to stop the Lions, even when they had five guys in the goal square to defend. I was thinking for a lot of the game, wow, Vlostone has really helped cover for the absence of Dylan Grimes a lot of the time. And I was thinking that Grimes being out would really hurt them through this finals campaign. Maybe that lack of leadership back there hurt them right at the end when Joe got that goal. We'll also note before we move on that one of our favorites and seemingly a fan favorite in Queensland, Mitch Robinson, revealed that this elimination final was his last at the gap before the Lions. Unsure at this point if it means he'll be retiring or just playing on elsewhere. I'm thinking he's probably at the tail end of his career, though, in this finals campaign. Was Robinson a player who you were paying attention to before this year, before you got into his logs? Not really. I wonder how we would have thought of him had we seen how it was like in the beginning of his career, because he's somewhat different from then. I mean, you can see that old part of him still. Rudy Edsall of Triple M was talking about this with us when he visited us a few weeks back now. The one final without as much late game drama was still a good ball game, just didn't have you on the edge of your seat in the final minutes. That was qualifying final number two, determining the Lions opponent in that one. Whoever lost that one would host the Lions. And turns out it's the reigning premiers. Melbourne 10-9-69. Nice. Defeated by Sydney 14-7-91. Melbourne got off to a hot start leading by 10 after the first quarter, and then quickly getting the first goal of the second quarter as well. The small forwards were doing their part early, Kazi Pickett getting that goal to make it 31-15. I was thinking that with the focus on the talls for Melbourne, someone like Pickett could sneak through sometimes. They didn't name Toby Bedford at all, though, and I was wondering if that was going to come back to hurt them. At that point, the McCartan brothers had yet to touch the ball. And Ethan, you had said that If you can keep the ball away from them, they can be a somewhat easy team to score on. But this is also a game where we saw the full team's depth for the Swans. However, one of the things that helped turn the tide was an exchange between players in arguably the marquee matchup. Stephen May fouling Buddy Franklin off the ball twice on the same passage. There was acting involved in that. There was a lot of acting and diving in this game. But I feel like you'd have to know after the first one, hey, they're calling these really quickly. Gotta stay off them. And May did it again. Things afterward resulted in Will Hayward getting downfield 50 and kicking from there. The Swans ended up scoring four goals in a row to go into the half up six. And then the second half, the Swans really started playing their game. It was a pretty even game through the midpoint of the third quarter. And then the Swans established themselves through the middle. Ali Florent had a really important part to play stabilizing them there, getting a couple intercepts when Melbourne had been getting pretty much all the intercept marks the entire game. Sydney grabbed the lead, ultimately for good, actually, off of a Florent intercept mark and when he kicked straight to Luke Parker between three Melbourne players on the ground. Nobody went up or got closer for it. And Parker may have been the best player of field. He's one of those players where you can see how he's built for final success with the kind of games he scraps out. Where we both really saw the game shift in the Swans' favor was on the next goal when Sam Reed had an intercept mark from a Stephen May kick, and then they called a protected 50. 
And it was a pretty obvious call. It wasn't like there was any sort of room for debate here. You know, a lot of the flopping drew soft calls when finals, you think they're going to let the guys play. At the same time, the protected 50s usually don't impact the game. Correct. But this one was so blatant that it's like, all right, you can't argue it. And it was Kazi. And you mentioned at times, I've really picked up on this as well, that his energy often reflects that of Melbourne. They really feed off him in a lot of ways. So Reed got that goal, and then he got the next one with one of the marks of the weekend. Flying from the back and marking over the contest between Jake Lever and Isaac Heaney was a quiet game for Heaney. That goal made it a 13-point margin, and I never really questioned from there that the Swans would win it. At times, the Demons just looked a little bit sloppy. James Harden's got reported and gave up a 50 that set up a Jake Lloyd goal to extend the lead to 18. At that point, it was a three-goal margin, and Melbourne had given up three fifties that each resulted in Swan's goals. Harms given a $3,000 fine. I thought that could have maybe been suspension-worthy. Maybe the impact was a little low for that. I'm not sure, but heck of a game out of Jake Lloyd. His first two goals of the season, and important in defensive matchups as well. Man, Jake Lloyd finally gets his first goals of the season. Cesar Hernandez hit his first homer of the year today. Okay, sudden Washington Nationals reference. America's team. <laughs> yeah, Lloyd might have been the best player for either team. I know you had your argument for Parker, but I thought when you look at like expected contributions versus actual performance, Lloyd was the one who was who exceeded expectations the most, whereas you expect these sorts of games from Luke Parker. Again, the game was Sydney's at that point, but there was a big defensive play which didn't involve that was kind of the exclamation point on it. I hate the term cherry on top, so exclamation point it is. The cherry on top of the bread and butter. Oh god, Ethan hates the term bread and butter, by the way. Bread and butter pickle is also not good. Just get yourself dills. Melbourne got a big run on advantage, but Jake Melksham slipped. Pretty poor game from Melksham. Maybe Stephen May was right about that, but Melksham couldn't get off a good kick as Dane Rampey and Robbie Fox closed in, and then Fox had a great smother on a close-range Charlie Spargo kick. Rampy corralled the ball, kicked to Logan McDonald to end that threat. It was a chance for Melbourne to maybe get some momentum with their ability off-center clearances. I was thinking after they got one of those center clearance goals that they could grab the game again, but they never did. Sydney had a really interesting game plan for this one. They were trying to just pressure the hell out of the Demons everywhere, and it worked. The pressure stats were absolutely ridiculous. Were absolutely ridiculous. They showed a graphic on Fox Footy after the game where the Swans were well above the AFL average in in a bunch of categories. I'm still not exactly sure how the pressure gauge is calculated, but the AFL average is around is 180, and the Swans were all the way at 200. I think I I remember a couple years ago, either Fox or Seven had like an explanation of it that was shown you know, during a simulcast on American TV. This was before the days we had watch AFL, so unfortunately I can't really go back and find it, but I'd love to be able to uncover that again because it was actually a really good explanation. AFL average is 58 tackles and, and 10 of those in the forward 50. The Swans were at 82 and 25, respectively. The AFL average is also about 70 to 30 in terms of percentage of uncontested versus contested possessions. Melbourne had one more uncontested possession that they did contested, 168 to 167. And the D's with just one score 
from 40 exits of the defensive 50. And, and this is a style that can somewhat be replicable, I think. A team can pressure regardless of talent. And I don't think you have to worry as much about being exhausted for the prior week when you've got a week off now. So whoever the Swans host in the prelim, good fucking luck, especially because it's at the SCG. First time they'll have hosted a prelim there since Tony Lockett had the behind after the siren to send the Swans into the centenary grand final in 96. Really not looking forward to that camera angle. I do want to say playing such a high pressure game did leave the Swans looking a little bit reckless at times, and they did have some sloppy giveaways and mistakes, but you're able to overcome those when you've got such a good back line, and even though the McCartan brothers were pretty quiet in this game, having them back there as the security blanket means the risk from playing at such high pressure is a lot lower. Given all the players who we already mentioned for the Swans, you can understand that this was a peak T-win type of game. I'd say Parker led the way in a lot of respects, but no Swan had more than five score involvements. Parker finished with a goal on 25 disposals, 11 tackles, 9 clearances. Lloyd, two goals on 25 disposals to go with 10 marks and 492 meters gained. James Rowbottom, he did basically everything. A goal, 24 disposals, 8 tackles, 7 intercepts, 6 clearances, 642 meters gained. He's one of those pieces that really helps complete the Swans lineup. One of their best players in terms of ground pressure and stoppage clearances and able to contribute in pretty much any other way as well. Callum Mills, a goal, 23 disposals, 11 tackles, 606 meters. Ollie Florent, 20 disposals and 490 meters. I thought Tom Hickey played really well, especially considering he was matched up with Max Gone and Luke Jackson throughout the night. He had a goal on 17 disposals and 7 intercepts and... Didn't let Gone look like the player that led the Demons to the flag last year. And then Sam Reed to round things out. Two goals in the behind on 11 disposals and six marks. As the year went on, I really liked the way he played, and he's kept that form up lately, which is a scary thought for anyone who could potentially have to play the Swans. I was nervous about how the Swans were going to look in the rough, matched up against Gone and Jackson, but one of Hickey's best games of the year, he was one that was highlighted in a lot of the post-game coverage with the impact he had, and Reed continuing his strong work as the second option there. Peter Laddams who? Notable individual stats for Melbourne. Clayton Oliver maybe would get the three votes in this game, even with a 22-point loss. Two goals on 29 disposals, 10 score involvements, eight clearances, eight tackles, and cue the music, 420 meters gained. Christian Petraka behind 24 disposals and 473 meters gained, but... His impact was lessened by some injuries he got, a bruise on his leg, and then also, as we learned, a hairline fracture of his fibula. A lot of injury concerns coming out of this game for the D's, with Petraka being the most notable in that respect. Charlie Spargo had a throat injury and lost his voice. Bailey Fritch and Jake Melksham with knee troubles, but all are expected to recover in time for the second semifinal, in which, again, they will be hosting Brisbane. That's the Friday night game this coming week. Rounding out the stats for Melbourne, James Harms with 23 disposals, 8 intercepts, 486 meters gained. Stephen May with 23 as well, 16 intercepts, 583 meters gained. He did a good job on Buddy aside from those couple lapses in judgment. But perhaps May being so focused on that Franklin matchup is what allowed some of the other Sydney Fords to stay free. And again, 
Again, it was their forwards that did a lot of that work because it was quiet game from Chad Warner, from Isaac Heaney, aside from the last goal, from Errol Golden. Whereas we're concerned about a lot of teams being top-heavy, and we're going to talk about one of those at the end, the Swans list might be the most balanced of them all. They're my pick to win the whole thing, and they reinforce that in this game. Thank you to Anchor by Spotify and the other platforms that host us. Don't forget that you can follow us to get our real-time thoughts on finals action and more at Americans Footy on Twitter. Personal Twitter accounts, BenjaminHK01 for me, Castle Media for me, and Cat Named Brian on Instagram for Brian Harambe, the footy cat who is sleeping at the foot of Ethan's bed right now. You may have heard him earlier in this episode. He has fortunately settled down. I love the sound of bells on a cat, by the way. When I was going to bed last night, I'd woken up from just kind of crashing because I had a very long Saturday, brushed my teeth, went back into the room, closed my door, and then all of a sudden heard his bell. She's like, wait, Brian, I don't want to trap you in here. Apparently, he likes hiding behind my trombone cases in the corner of the room. By the way, for those of you wondering, news about our live show is still up in the works, but we are planning on hosting a live show at the Springfield Dinner Theater. It's just tough to get dates there with guys and dolls being performed most nights. Yeah, especially when tickets are in such high demand with Mark Hamill still in that run. I was wondering how we were going to be able to top those first couple finals, especially the first one. I'm not sure if the first qualifier topped it or not. If you're a Cats fan like Ethan, I'd probably say it certainly did. But what else do we expect from Collingwood but a close game? Actually, I don't know if it really topped it because I wanted an absolute beatdown. I wanted no drama whatsoever, and we had a close down-to-the-wire game. Didn't think it was going to look that way from the beginning, though, with how Collingwood started out. It looked like the Cats were in for yet another qualifying final flop. They were getting throttled early on. Trailed 22-3. You had a surprising miss from Jeremy Cameron. You had Tyson Stengel with a ball that got barely tipped off his boot by Taylor Adams. And I'm just thinking already, oh, fuck, those are the sort of plays that add up to another close Collingwood win. I did not think the Cats were going to win this game until the final 10, 15 seconds. Spoiler alert. They did manage to stay in it the whole way. Collingwood never led by more than 19 though they should have been up way more in the first quarter. This was similar to when the teams met all the way back in round three, a really bad first quarter from the Cats, but got bailed out by poor Collingwood kicking, this time 3-5, including Ash Johnson, of all people, had a really bad early miss. I think he made up for it with his, with his later shot, though. Cats had the lead briefly in the second quarter and had a bunch of chances to pile on with more inside 50s. They actually played a really good second quarter about kind of carrying over how they had finished the first and continuing to improve and ramp up. So maybe that bad first quarter was carryover from rust from having a week off. If so, that's a bigger issue at large that still needs to be fixed because especially since they'll have another bye. But They took the lead with a Brad Close goal on the run because Brad Close is really fast. And good things happen when he has the ball in hand. Usually. The Pies did go into halftime with a one-point lead off of a Will Hoskin-Elliott goal, but I still wasn't terribly bothered by that. That goal hardly changed my perception of the game because the Cats still definitely had the momentum largely on their side. I didn't think that goal changed that much, and I thought that going into halftime down a point was 
probably a fairer reflection of how the game had been played than if they had gone in up by four or five. Would I have liked them to go in with the lead? Yes, but it seemed like, all right, they're in this thing. They've got a shot, but I don't trust anyone in a close game against Hollywood. I don't trust like that. Even when you're thinking about round three, Hollywood was a different team back then. I thought at this point, the Cats' path to win was just drill them in the third quarter, take it to the point of no return like the Swans had done to Collingwood in round 22 because I still thought Collingwood make the plays to win close games and the little touch by Taylor Adams was huge. I thought Adams made a lot of really good scrappy plays throughout this game. The Pies started the third quarter better, got the first goal of the third after Bo McCreary set up Ash Johnson. I really like McCreary. His development this year has been one of the more fun parts of this Collingwood team. The Cats got the next two to take the lead with goals by Mitch Duncan off of a Jeremy Cameron setup. Usually it goes the other way around. And Gary Rowan getting his second. I had tweeted during the first quarter that Rowan did nothing to merit his selection. His spot was the one that should have gone to Brandon Parfit, And he basically said, shut the fuck up. Honestly, I still believe that Parfit would have really helped in this matchup. His physicality against Collingwood's midfield was badly missed, and I hate to admit it, but if you're looking to include Parfit in two weeks, Brian Myers might be the one who you would take out, although he did have a goal assist and should have had another assist or two. Should have actually had a goal instead of passing the ball off at one point. That actually came shortly after. Yeah, he was just... Too unselfish to take a shot that he should have taken in front, and Brad Close hit the post. I don't know if it was unselfishness or lack of confidence that he'd be able to turn around and get the shot off cleanly, but it was really like the first mistake Brad Close made all year, and I thought it was a huge one. That was immediately a five-point mistake, and then Collingwood came back down the other way and got a Jack Crisp goal off a of Jordan Degoe set up. Degoe with a really solid game through the middle in this one. So it turned into an 11-point swing. Then Ash Johnson with a ridiculous goal from the right boundary. Second game in a row from that same pocket on the same side of the G that he had. An awesome kick from there. This was just a great play. It was an, I'm not even mad, that's amazing. But also, oh shit, if they're hitting this, it's their day. But Jeremy Cameron had... Almost the exact same goal at the other end after a rare Braden Maynard mistake. He kicked one out on the full. Soccered one out on the full. Cameron went like as far back as he could. The Collingwood supporters were practically touching him when he began his run up. Johnson's kick was this bending thing. Cameron's was straight on. And if you haven't heard BT's call of it on Triple M for everything people might not like about him, even as a former Collingwood player, he loved that moment. It was talking about how, you know, Jezza turns around and says, you cop that, you assholes. Patrick Lipinski, by the way, I would have given him three votes. In fact, even though his possession numbers didn't end up that great, almost every one of his plays was high impact. He finished with 18 disposals and a goal. He set up Jamie Elliott to reopen the lead to seven. It was 59-52, Collingwood after three. Lipinski's best game post by. He'd had a couple really important games in the first couple of the season and had gone quiet for a while. Not a bad time to reemerge. Jordan Degoe played a really good fourth quarter and got a goal to stretch the lead to 12 with 17.47 left. But you know who else had a really good fourth quarter? Just like he has pretty much every fourth quarter? Tom Atkins. If there's reason to believe that this Cats team could actually do the thing, Tom Atkins is going to be an enormous part of it. 
Atkins and Selwood as well. Selwood was able to play alongside him really well in the fourth corner. In fact, those two were right alongside each other for that play to get Jeremy Cameron the response goal. And Selwood had impact on a couple other goals as well, including the one that gave the Cats the lead with about eight and a half left. He kicking over the top to Tyson Stengel and Brad Close ran it in because, again, Brad Close. And hey, Brian Myers was involved in that play too. He did a good job saving a ball from Max Holmes. Before that, Close had actually missed a kick out on the full, which he rarely does. And there were just so many reasons I was thinking, this is just going to add up to a close Collingwood win. Mark Blitzoff was struggling. It was actually, he slipped, which helped set up that first goal of the quarter for Dugowie. It was a quiet game for Reese Stanley. Blitzoff and Stanley had been two of this team's biggest pieces all year, and they both struggled in this game. However, if there was one thing in terms of personnel that made me think Geelong had more of a chance here, it was that Taylor Adams went down with another injury because he had been playing a really important role, just solid in midfield and half forward, a stabilizer on a team that has a lot of players that just love running forward. And while Adams could certainly do that and kick long himself, I felt like he was more setting up other players for those opportunities. But Adams re-injured his groin and kept him out the past few rounds as well. And sadly, Colin would suspect that he tore it straight off the bone. That meant Nathan Kruger came in as the medical sub. His first action since dislocating his shoulder again on Anzac Day. It just felt like a very, very strange pick to have Kruger as your sub instead of someone who could be more versatile like Finn McRae or a clutch fourth quarter guy like Ali Henry. It seemed to me, though that it would have just been too perfect for Kruger to make a big play against the Cats. I do want to mention, I had no issue with Geelong letting him go. He just didn't really have a spot, but I like the kid. I think he's a good player. There were a couple of guys who got hurt over the course of the year for Collingwood on the younger side that had really impressed me. Kruger, Reef McInnes. And it's amazing that they haven't had to make too many changes to their team each week when they've got more than 22 or 23 viable pieces. You could definitely see Kruger in next week because Brody Majacek seemed to be having some issues as well. Not his best game. He may be carrying an injury. So maybe Kruger's going to be that tall presence at the end. But you had Majacek off near the end. Ash Johnson seemed to be in trouble at the end and was off for the final 11, 12 minutes real time. Mason Cox was off at the end. Where was the tall option for Collingwood in the closing minutes? As much as Jamie Elliott carried them over the line in multiple games this year and has been excellent in the fourth quarter, he was getting outnumbered in packs because there was no other clear target there for the Pies. So 66-65 Geelong, that lasted for a little under four minutes of clock time because Scott Pendlebury handballed to Jordan Dugowie for a go-ahead goal with 4.52 remaining. Again, awesome fourth quarter from Dugowie. By the way, it sounds like Essendon could end up being the suitor for him after all. They were linked to him early in the year, and now, again, it seems like they're being connected. If Dugowie hasn't already re-signed, I'm not sure. There are conflicting reports on that. We'll definitely get more clarity from that once Collingwood's season ends, whenever it does. Exit interviews will be telling. Zach Tui had an okay game, but made a really important play to win an intercept mark against Patrick Lipinski off a Darcy Cameron kick. He set up Gary Rowan, who kicked his third of the game from 54 meters out. That put the Cats up by one. 
And that was a huge mark from Rowan over the top to make that play too. And if there was any sign for me that the Cats were going to get it done, I said in the past, and I went through the stats, I'll say it afterward, but when Gary Rowan kicks multiple goals, things tend to be pretty good for the team around him. Jack Crisp had a chance to give the Pies a lead back, but he missed to the left, tying the game with 2.31 to go. Were you fearing extra time at this point? I had thought of that a while ago, but I actually thought, you know, extra time might just favor Geelong just because it would be this weird thing where Collingwood are so good in the end of close games and regulation. It would be really funny if they weren't so good in extra time, but that ended up not being an issue. Cam Guthrie ended up taking the ball out of a crowd, which I didn't think he'd had a particularly good game until that point, but he made a big play there. Got the ball to Jeremy Cameron, who led it for Gary Rowan. It went right through Rowan's arms. He dropped it, but had enough separation to get the ball back. Handballed on to Max Holmes, who kicked the goal for the lead. Apparently, Holmes thought the Cats were already in front, and maybe he thought his goal put him up by seven to seal a game. Did he think Crisp had missed altogether? That feels like the most logical thing here. I don't know, but it was really funny hearing that he didn't realize he had broken the tie. A couple plays after that were really important, but none more so than a tap by who else? Brad Close. Bo McCreary was looking like he might be able to spear things forward, but Close tapped it to get the ball from him. Joel Selwood grabbed it. Selwood loves those contests, loves that close quarters action. No pun there with Brad Close's last name, by the way. I don't stoop that low, but Selwood kicked to an open Patrick Dangerfield for a mark. That took up a lot of time. It wasn't the end of the game, but Collingwood never got another chance. So Geelong defeating Collingwood 11-12-78 to 10-12-72. Geelong to a prelim, Collingwood into a semifinal against whoever won the next game. And whoever wins that semifinal has to go to the SCG. How fun. I called it a death sentence on Twitter. And perhaps it's a little exaggeration, but I don't think it's that much of one. I think they have a chance of parole, whoever ends up going there. I gotta say, though, it became all the more important to win this game once the Swans had won. Stats of note in this game. First off, Tom Atkins, 23 disposals on 9 tackles and 8 clearances. 12 of those disposals and 3 tackles and 4 clearances and a pair of intercepts in the fourth quarter alone. 8 of those touches in the fourth were contested as well. He's one of those Bill for Finals players like Luke Parker. He actually had a pretty bad turnover that set up the first goal of the game, which was very uncharacteristic of him. Got caught holding the ball on the left side boundary in Collingwood's 450 by Pat Lipinski. If this form of Atkins continues to show up, that's the sort of guy who can take you to a flag. Joel Selwood, team high 25 disposals. Mitch Duncan, a goal and a behind on 23 disposals. Cam Guthrie behind on 23 disposals and 7 tackles. Question for you, though. Was Cam the inferior of the Guthrie brothers? We'll get to Zach in a minute. I'm surprised we haven't yet. Patrick Dangerfield, 22 disposals and 8 clearances. Got off to a slow start, but picked it up. Kind of helped squish the narrative there. Tom Stewart kicked it behind. He had 22 disposals, 10 intercepts, and gained 611 meters. Isaac Smith the behind, 20 disposals, 509 meters gained. Jeremy Cameron, three goals, two behinds, 12 score involvements out of 17 disposals. Zach Guthrie really kept the Cats afloat in that first quarter and was one of the biggest reasons, along with Sam DeConing and obviously Tom Stewart, that the Pies finished 
just 42.9% efficiency inside 50. Zuthree, 17 disposals, 8 intercepts, 586 meters gained. And Gary Rowan, who told us all to shut the fuck up, 3 goals in a behind. Rowan playing so well, and Cameron also kicking as well as he did, maybe made people forget that Tom Hawkins had a quiet game. Luke Darcy in the broadcast booth was fawning over Darcy Moore, and he did a very good job in that one-on-one matchup. But as I said, when Gary Rowan kicks multiple goals, very good things happen. I went through the stats. Thank you, AFL Tables. So Rowan has a winning percentage of a little under 69 for his career now. Nice. From 175 games. Winning percentage of 83 from games in which he's kicked multiple goals, 54 of those games. So his team's a third more likely to win if he kicks multiple goals. And then he kicked three and his teams are 17 and one in the 18 games in which he's kicked at least three goals. Reese Matheson's the barometer? No, Gary Rowan is. Collingwood stats, Scott Pendlebury with the most possessions with 34 disposals, far and away the leader for the game. Unsurprising that he'd take it up another notch come finals. Both Dacos brothers important. Josh doing very well along the wing. Noticed him especially early. Had a goal, 29 disposals, 8 marks, and gained 519 meters. Nick gained 25 disposals in more of his halfback role. John Noble didn't have that one-on-one matchup because he's not as good in those situations and was one of the biggest ground gainers on the field. Gained 485 meters for 27 disposals. On the opposite side, you had Steele Sidebottom with 23 disposals, 10 intercepted, 6 tackles. I mentioned Darcy Moore earlier, Moore with 21 disposals, 10 intercepts, and 10 marks. But I was surprised that Nathan Murphy didn't have as big of a game. And I'm saving Jordan Degoe for last because I thought that if there was any single player that could have propelled Collingwood to victory, it would have been him. Two goals straight from 26 disposals. Nine tackles, eight clearances, 465 meters gained. One of his best games of the season. He loves the big moments. He's been important in finals campaigns in the past, and he's going to have to be again if the Pies are going to be able to rebound from this defeat. Interestingly, Collingwood only made 63 interchanges. Maybe that's why they look so tired and laid down like losers at the end? First off, I thought this was a weird hill for Craig McRae to die on. I think it's a pretty common reaction to losing a close game, especially a final. And I just noticed they look pretty gutted and there's nothing wrong with guys looking like they care, even if it's in a loss. Maybe it's him thinking, hey, season's not over. That might be it. I thought that lack of interchanges could have been why a couple of the Cats' late goals in the game were scored where they were able to leak out back and have numbers on the run. Looking back and kind of connecting the dots there wasn't something... I thought of at the time. Normally, when I think interchanges with Geelong, it's worrying if Chris Scott has saved enough of them for the final minutes. That never really came into focus here, though they did end up maximizing them. The only thing with interchanges that really came into focus at all for the Cats was that each quarter started with Selwood and Dangerfield on the bench. It seemed odd, especially with how poorly they started a couple of quarters, but it worked out in the end. I don't know if this is something... I'd consider doing again, but in this case, it was at least successful. You know who we didn't mention during our recap of this game? Jack Ginnivan. He didn't do much. Held to nine disposals. He had one shot that missed everything. Uh, He always is talked about a bit, though, so we have to mention him. And there was a question about whether or not he should have been paid a free kick somewhat early on. My stance on it is 
if it's a free kick, it should be obvious enough that you don't have to dive for it. It was borderline, one between him and Zach Guthrie. It could have been a push in the back. The only other time I really noticed him at all was when he got tangled up with Zach Tui after a play. It's like, of all the people to get tangled up with and keep pushing at, I don't get why, and it was totally unnecessary. And now that the Cats have played him since he kind of took off, I see why you hate him while you're playing against him, but my stance remains consistent that he is, in fact, good for footy. Zach Tui is definitely good for footy as well. He was probably searching for Guinea's wallet. I don't know. Ginevan didn't deserve to get his wallet back. Eh, they lost. Maybe Tui was just one to be nice to him at the end of it all. You know who else lost? The Bulldogs. Wait, what? I turned off the game in the middle of the second quarter. There are definitely people out there who did that. We were not among those people. Yes, we had a very long Friday night into Saturday Pretty much a 24 or so hour stretch dominated by two codes of football. And normally I wouldn't feel so tired midway through it, but when you have these kinds of crazy games before the American college football stuff starts, you get why it wiped us out so much. This was definitely a game where the final score does not tell the story. Fremantle 11-7-73, defeating the Bulldogs 8-12-60. Fremantle trailed this game 42-1. to It looked at first like one of those Brazil-Germany type games, you know, great home crowd and they just get crushed. There were great crowd shots. You you had the idea the whole way through that like, oh, there's no way Frio get blasted this badly all game, but it would be fair to doubt if they were going to come all the way back or even close to it. By the way, just under 59,000 on hand at Optus, great crowd, great atmosphere. Biggest crowd ever for a Fremantle home game, in fact. What I did notice about that first quarter and a half from the Bulldogs is that they were managing to get out behind a lot of the Fremantle defense, and they used their talls pretty well. Even though Sean Darcy was winning battles in the ruck against Tim English, English was dominating in other parts of the ground, like you expect, because he's the most versatile ruckman in the league. Sorry, Max, gone. And speaking of Darcy, Sam Darcy got a couple good moments in the forward 50 as well. The first time he marked right on the line, he played on to avoid a review for some reason, which made absolutely no sense. Either it's a behind or it's a mark, and he hit the post anyway. But then he actually finished the second time when an errant Josh Dunkley shot went his way. By the way, AFL broadcasters are terrible at differentiating people with the same last names. You hardly heard him say like Sean Darcy, Sam Darcy, Try differentiating the Dacoff brothers by just listening to the TV audio and you won't do much. Oh, there were two Smiths in this game too, Bailey and Rourke. That probably passed over some people's heads. Even though Rourke had some prominent moments, including maybe the mark of the round. Fremantle, even when it looked like they had chances to get back in this game, did a lot of self-destructing. They had some really inaccurate kicking, especially by Michael Walters, but they kind of showed what Max King needs to do and show that you can still have a productive game, even if your first couple of kicks are shitty. Walters was 0-2 from three shots in the first few minutes. And I'd say that it was from the beginning that Fremantle were having these kicking errors, not just when they were trying to get back in it. They cost themselves a lot early on, and the Bulldogs were able to punish that. If you're looking at just the quality of the shots that they got from the first quarter, so you'd think maybe a two or three-goal lead from the Dogs would have made sense. In the long run, it feels like the Bulldogs were trying to put Frio away early and it backfired because the defense corralled itself in 
the second half big time. Blake Akers was prominent all game, but he got support in the second half. Andrew Brayshaw played an important role throughout, and in the fourth quarter especially, he shifted toward more of a defensive role to help seal things off. This is a game where, even though there was a lot of attention again on David Mundy for it being his last game out West, it was the young pieces for Fremantle that got it done for them. Outside of Akers and Brayshaw, Caleb Sarong did his usual thing again, not tagged all that closely to the Bulldogs' detriment. Nathan O'Driscoll looked like he got hurt early on, came back, scored a goal, and welcome back, Jayamis, involved in forward play a lot and ended up with two goals. In just his second game of AFL footy, he's got four goals from his first two games. It was Sonny Walters who did end up getting Fremantle's first goal. Andrew Brayshaw got a goal off the ensuing center clearance from guess who, Caleb Sarong. Rio ended up with the last four goals of the first half with Sarong and Amos kicking before halftime. And they started looking like themselves through the middle. And as I previously said, they really started looking like themselves defensively once they came back for the second half. The Bulldogs did have decent forward time in multiple parts of the fourth quarter, but they didn't really get anything to show for it. They had a prolonged stretch near the end of the quarter, but only got two points out of it. Rio's back six definitely bailed out the rest of the team at times, and then right at the end of the quarter, Heath Chapman got in the way of a handball by Latham Vandermeer, which prevented another score. It ended up being just a six-point game at three-quarter time, 53-47 to in the Bulldogs' favor. Speaking of Vandermeer, he was probably one of the weakest spots for the Bulldogs. I barely noticed him, so I would say that favors what you said. I remember reading one tweet that said the two worst players afield for the Dogs didn't play in the grand final and Vandermeer was the unused sub. So I assume they were talking about him as well as Ryan Tika Masala Gardner. You know how the other elimination final had 17 lead changes? This one had one, but was just as captivating down the stretch. Jai Amis tied it with 1640 left after... A really nice handball by Caleb Sarong got things going. So a couple really important situational goals for Amos. His first one came right at the halftime siren. Then he tied things. And from there, Freeman will continue to take advantage of decreasing Bulldogs pressure. Both teams' pressure was noticeably down in the third quarter, but the Bulldogs dropped from over 200, so Swans level in the first half, to under the league average in the third quarter, down to 177. Fox footy commentators were making a point of that. And then it ended up being Griffin Logue, who largely had a quiet game and who some people might expect be taken out of the side or put in a medical sub role if Max Havener is to come back next round, because at this point, you got to keep Amos in. Logue marked from Lockheed Schultz, or however broadcasters want to say his name at this point. Schultz, it's like, it's like it's spelled with a schwa which should be the 27th letter of the English alphabet. It should go W-X-Y-Z schwa. I think it would be hard to take Logue out with his overall body of work this year, but because he can play all over, he would be a very good medical sub. Michael Frederick then forced a big turnover on Ed Richards and set up Michael Walters for his third goal. I thought this was a really good second half from Frederick, who started slow but really picked it up. Early in the year, I commented a lot on his pressure, on his ability to 
kind of act like a like he was putting on a full court press in a basketball game. This time it was more his ability to run across the middle of the field that made him so effective. And it was a totally different utilization of his speed, but an effective one nonetheless. Looked like the dogs could have had a bit of energy after, as I mentioned earlier, Rourke Smith took potentially the mark of the round after he crashed a contest between Jamar Hagen and Brennan Cox. But Fremantle got the last goal with about seven and a half to go from Nathan O'Driscoll after he got Josh Dunkley holding the ball on the right-hand boundary. And that could have been it for Dunkley at the dogs. Sounds more and more like that port deal will happen. Who knows what the price on that is going to be, though, now that a bar may have been set by the Tim Tirano deal. You know, that mention of Eugle Hagen was like the only time he crossed my mind. He was very quiet in this game. Perhaps some of his marking role was diminished by more targeting of Sam Darcy. That distribution does need to even out. Marcus Bonapelli was prominent for the dogs because he helped them get off to that big start. He had two first quarter goals, including the opener. But it was hard to pinpoint, you know, one important Bulldogs player in the second half because, well, they got run over. And at the end of the day, it was another one of those times where talent couldn't get them over the line and adjustments from the Fremantle coaching staff did them in. Some of the Bulldogs' wounds were definitely self-inflicted. The death by a thousand cuts comparison that Luke Beveridge put on was appropriate, but this is a case where the Dogs ended up being outplayed and outcoached when it mattered. Craig from a yank on the foot, he said he was basically trying to replace Josh Bruce all year and it never really happened. And then, you know, they decided eventually, all right, this version of Josh Bruce isn't even good enough. We're taking him out. And when we previewed finals and talked about why each team would win or lose the flag, and we'll do some more post-mortem stuff on our next episode because we only have two games to preview. But I said, and you agreed, that Luke Beveridge would be a reason the dogs don't win the flag, and I saw no adjustments from him whatsoever. He's got a year left on his contract, and there should be just about as much heat on him with their streak of early exits. How all the times the Bulldogs have made the finals under Beveridge, it's been fifth through eighth, and they've had these repeated elimination final exits. They've gone to the grand final twice, but I don't see any coach-based reasons that they've ended up getting there. So next year is more than a referendum for him, or it should be. I've said for a while he's a great quote, but he's not a great coach. And I think he would be a great TV personality. You know, their performance in recent years is in some ways, if you take out 2016, like Cincinnati Bengals-ish, I mean, their drought without... Playoff success isn't that long, but there was this kind of random run to a grand final. Actually, yeah, that would be surprisingly appropriate because this is now their fourth elimination final exit under Beveridge, 2015, 19, 20, and 22. And again, they have too much talent for this. Yes, they got beat by a good team. Fremantle's good. And if they had just lost by 13 in a more ordinary game, it would be easy to shrug off. But it was a game that they led by 41. The biggest finals lead blown since Adelaide blew a 42-point lead to Essendon in the 93 preliminary final. Well, if you want more flag mantle hope, Essendon won the flag that year. Fremantle stats of note, Caleb Sarong, a goal on 33 disposals and 10 clearances. He's just been racking them up like crazy lately. Collingwood might want to tag him. Andrew Brayshaw, 32 disposals, 10 marks, 478 meters gained. Luke Ryan, 31 disposals, 9 intercepts, 680 meters gained. 
Aiden Young, 28 disposals and 11 marks. Heath Chapman, 27 disposals and 9 marks. I'm sure many Fremantle fans will be thinking about his performance in the shower this time. Or the bathtub. That's an early reference there. Brennan Cox, 26 disposals, 8 marks, 507 meters gained. Blake Akers, 24 disposals. He gained 544 meters. And Michael Walters, despite his poor start, 3-3 on 18 disposals. Max King, take notes. Jack McRae was the leading possession getter for the Western Bulldogs. Absolutely no surprise. He is now the first VFL-AFL player with a 50-game-plus streak of 20 disposals twice in his career. Marcus Bonapelli, the earliest starter for the Bulldogs, 2-1 from 30 disposals, 9 marks, 7 tackles, 635 meters gained. The full forward experiment has paid its dividends a lot this year. May we see it continue in 2023? I'm not entirely sure. Caleb Daniel with an active day, starting possessions from the back as usual. 29 disposals from 456 meters gained. We've been focused more on the rise of Ed Richards to prominence this year, but Daniel is not to be underrated, of course. Lockie Hunter with him behind, 25 disposals, 8 intercepts, 450 meters gained. Josh Dunkley, perhaps say goodbye with a goal, 23 touches and 14 tackles. Toby McLean kicked 0-2 from 21 disposals and 9 tackles. Bailey Smith also had 21 touches and gained 616 meters. Never like he didn't have a prominent role, but it also felt like the dogs were able to sort of change their strategies reasonably well when he was absent earlier in the year. Maybe that's just because of the depth they have on players who can slot into the midfield like Bonapelli and Adam Trelore. Trelore actually played forward in a decent part of this game, a switch from when he'd been at halfback for a lot of the year. In the back, Alex Keith was the intercept leader with nine. I just want to be consistent with my messaging here. The Bulldogs felt their backs were up against the wall during the first quarter and the early part of the second quarter, and then they kind of let their guard down. You know, they won when they needed to, and when their season wasn't on the line, they just kind of slapped around. So when their backs were up against the wall, they limited Fremantle to the same score as their women's team? Yes. And then they decided beverage isn't worth it? No. Not a reflection on beverage. These two things are completely independent of one another. He's kept up with this for six months. It started in like rounds three and five, and yeah, I'm not letting this go. You're, you're continuing this into next season. We'll see. We'll see about next season. I think each season can kind of be independent, but I think it was pretty evident in the way they played this Dockers game when they cared, when it mattered to them, and when they were like, okay, we've done our part. Fuck's sake. This is normally when we'd give you the Mark of the Week and Goal of the Week nominees, but there are none. However, I do want to highlight a couple plays. I mentioned a couple big marks. We have three big marks with players flying over the back of contests in three separate games. You had Sam Reed for the Swans going over Jake Lever versus Isaac Heaney. You had Gary Rowan over the contest between Tom Hawkins and Darcy Moore. That was his second goal. And then the mark set of his third goal was pretty nice too, but if I had to pick a mark of the round, it was Rourke Smith in that Hugo Hagen versus Cox contest. I always believe that the best mark is the one that in real time you see it and you go, oh! And for me, that was Rourke Smith. I definitely, you know, sat up more in my chair when I saw Gary Rowan's couple marks because I was just surprised about the impact that he had on the Cats' win and that he may have been the player most responsible for it single-handedly. But yeah, Smith was probably the best. And in terms of goals, 
The one real live play goal that impressed me the most was Charlie Cameron's first early in the second quarter of the first game of the round. He couldn't mark a long kick from Jared Berry because Nathan Broad had a good spoil, but Charlie scooped it and scored on the run, going diagonally away from the goal and kicking over his shoulder. That whole sequence with the goals by Ash Johnson and Jeremy Cameron was pretty awesome as well. But yeah, Charlie Cameron's was pretty cool. I just am against making a set shot goal, a goal of the week or whatever. Generally speaking, yes, those were both pretty cool, but it was also, they were cool because of the situation in which they happened. If that had happened in a blowout, it would have just been like, yeah, nice shot. The fact that Ash Johnson managed to kick a ridiculous goal from the same angle in the same pocket in successive games at the same ground is pretty remarkable, though. Both in front of massive crowds, too. Minimum 88,000. If I had a concluding point about this week, it was just, holy cow. And also, we know what the fuck we're talking about. We know ball. If you go back and listen to what we said about why teams can and can't win the flag, we hit the nail on the head for a lot of things. I said that Zach Bailey was going to be really important if the Lions were going to be able to end their dry spell in finals at the GABA, and he certainly was. You said Geelong's midfield was going to need to step things up, and Tom Atkins and Joel Selwood drove things there. Fremantle's defense needed to hold things down in the second half, and overall, I think we were just generally proven more right than I expected we would in just our third year of watching the footy. So we're on to good things here. If you want to see anything from us during the week, you can always find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. You can personally find me at Castle Media. You can find me at BenjaminHK01. You can find Brian Harambe, our one and only footy cat, because he's Ethan's one and only cat, at Cat Named Grind on Instagram. Sadly, I don't think we'd be able to organize a meetup between him and Pumpkin, the official cat of the hoops show, because Trans-Pacific travel with a pet is extremely difficult. I guess the photos will have to make do. We'll be coming to you again in a couple days with our semifinals preview. And again, that time we'll also give our postmortems on Richmond and the Bulldog seasons. If you didn't listen to our postmortems for the other teams, for the teams that didn't make the finals, you can go back and listen to those at any time, of course. Also, if you didn't ever listen to our ranking special where we talked about the club songs and the Sir Doug Nichols jumpers for the year, that would be a good listen as well because it's probably going to get a little boring hearing the same trade talk and the same finals previews throughout this week. So hopefully that can spice things up. Thanks a lot for listening once again.